You're listening to The Group Sessions, a podcast that bridges the gap between informed public health and healthy mental hygiene. My name is Rob, and I'm a certified mental health life coach and master NLP practitioner. I'm best known for my publications and social media content, as well as individual counseling. Join me on this therapeutic journey while we analyze and overcome issues impacting our mental well-being. Welcome and welcome back to the group sessions. Welcome anyone that's new here. Welcome to the family. Anyone that is returning, happy to have you here. Today we're celebrating actually our 30th episode of group. That is super exciting. The fact that we have had 30 sessions together and um, that we've published 30 therapeutic conversations. That's crazy. I'm, I'm just so honored to be the person to hold this type of a space. And I'm so glad that you guys are getting value from this. Thank you so much for sharing all of the episodes that you've shared. Thank you for participating. Thank you for voting. Thank you for commenting. Thank you for the ratings. Thank you for the reviews. Thank you for your notifications being turned on for the subscriptions. I definitely appreciate everything. And to celebrate all of the trust that we've built within each other, all of the growth that we've had, I'm going to make this episode a special episode on one of the many um, collections within this podcast, and it's going to be called Society 101. In Society 101, it's going to be a collection of episodes where we actually review some things that have happened in the media and discuss what exactly can be learned from these experiences rather than constantly fighting over who's right and who's wrong, constantly using these media events as clickbait or jumping off controversial topics and things like that, just kind of humanizing the news a little bit more and going back to a time where we acknowledge that people in the media are also human beings and we can learn from their perspectives. We can learn from their experiences. We can even learn from their mistakes. That's going to be Society 101. And today we're going to be talking about a race related issue where there was a white student who went to an HBCU, Howard University, and as a result of his time at at Howard University, he experienced or is claiming to experience a lot of pain and suffering surrounded by um, racial injustice. He was treated differently because of his race, um, and he suffered a lot of depression, suicidal thoughts, um, and just a general bout of mental health symptoms as a result of being targeted and excluded on the campus due to him being white. His name is Michael Newman, and he was attending Howard University School of Law. He was there for two years, and then he was expelled in September 2022. Um, I don't have all of the exact details of the case, but like I said, he is claiming that he experienced depression, anxiety, and suicidal thoughts as a result of public ostracism and um, vilification and humiliation. I do know that when this story broke, I feel like the story broke maybe two and a half, maybe three weeks ago. And I like to kind of let things sit on the stove for a little bit because sometimes when stories break, if they're interesting and they can be worded in a certain way, they tend to get a lot of traction and people get excited to just jump on that bandwagon. So I like to let them calm down a little bit so that I can approach it with fresh eyes. The most credible sources outside of the actual legal disclosed case information obviously would be these news outlets. For the most part, they're all kind of saying the same things, but not giving us the details as to what actually happened in this kid's time. I do know that it was reported that they were calling him 
a lot of names on campus related to like racial slurs pertaining to his whiteness. He's claiming that he tried to remedy the situation by producing a letter explaining his views and explaining why he was attending an HBCU. And that was also um, not received by the school. I think that his intentions were to receive a college education, but also he's, he was specifically a law student. So not only did he want to ex- like receive a law education, but he wanted to understand how black people were treated within the legal system or how the legal system was offered in a way to produce healthier outcomes for black people. I'm not 100% sure. I have yet to hear him speak. And personally, I don't, I'm going to be completely honest, I don't really want to. (laughs) Um, I do have my own personal feelings about that, and we will definitely get into it. But um, yeah, it sounds like he was, he went to the school and he was met with a lot of oppositions. People were not comfortable with his presence at an HBCU as a non-person of color from his perspective that 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 escalated into basically a hostile academic environment pretty much we have so much to talk about in terms of this story as a black person my first reaction to this was why why would a person who is not black or not a person of color want to go to an HBCU? An HBCU is a historically black college or university. Historically, these spaces were gathered as opportunities for black people to receive higher education without the discriminatory practices of industrial America, where they were not welcomed into other Um, institutions of higher learning this was an opportunity for them to for black people to advance in career paths where they were not being afforded opportunities in other schools as a natural progression of that initiative hbcus pride themselves on black pride on empowering African-American youth on um, taking a hard stance when it comes to institutionalized racism and oppression. If you're a person that is genuinely interested in studying at an HBCU to learn more about the Black experience, if that's truly what your interest is and you're a white person, furthermore, a white man, I would imagine that you predict being met with some sort of opposition. We know that he was interested in the legal system and how the legal system impacts people of color. So there's a there's a general understanding in the air that there is an Institu- there's a sense of American institutions 
acting in a way that is not beneficial to black Americans. Sometimes when we talk about problems like race, and I've said this before, we discuss it like it's weather, like it's this imaginary thing that's just kind of happening. It's, it's just racy outside, like it's warm and it just comes from the elements. We don't discuss racism in the sense of there is someone responsible for inflicting this pain, right? And we don't give racism a face because we want to move forward in a way that is as peaceful as possible. And by giving racism a face, there's a fear that there is going to be a targeted retribution towards the face of racism. And now if there was a face of racism, it no doubt would be the people that have in some way or another benefited on the backs of racial oppression, meaning the people who have been preferred in these industries that downsize and minimize black people. And I break all of that down because although the that there was a reason for this kid to make this decision, it, it just seems like if you truly want to learn there are other ways to kind of go about gaining that insight without disrupting what a lot of black kids who are at that school consider to be a safe haven. You could audit classes, right? You could watch lectures, you could read books. You don't necessarily need to be immersed in the academic environment that is created as a safety, a safe space for this particular population. It's the same as like if you wanted to learn about LGBTQ plus issues, if you wanted to learn about the experiences of people who have been disenfranchised, people who have been treated differently because of their race, because of their gender, because of their religion, you don't necessarily need to go to a place of safe haven for a, a certain amount, a certain type of people in order for you to learn about, like, I guess what I'm trying to say is that Howard University is not the only place where you can learn about racial oppression and you don't need to go into a black space to solve the problems of race because racism is not a black problem. It's not a problem that black people have. Racism is the problem of the racist. So it, it, to me, if you truly wanted to learn about how systems oppress black people, in my mind, you would want to learn how those systems are being taught outside of the black community. You know, what is what is exactly the mindset of someone who is a racial oppressor, someone who is a supremacist? What are they what are they talking about? What are they thinking? How are they using the law to minimize the importance and the rights of black people? You know, there's nothing wrong with diversity and inclusion. If you want to learn about how you play a part in homophobia or transphobia or biphobia, 
you can learn about those things without going to an LGBTQ center and becoming a member of that center. Now, it's a little bit different when it comes to pride because there is um, like alliances that are formed and there's space within that community for alliances. But if there wasn't, you can let that space remain a safe space exclusively for people who identify within that struggle and lean on each other for support without you being a pers- person that does not have any experience kind of going into that space looking to take from it. And I'm willing to bet that that is probably exactly how this person was received on the Howard University campus. Now, I am not I am not at all saying it's okay for us to bully and name call anybody. What I am saying is that you have to have tried really hard to put yourself in that kind of environment, whereas it was completely avoidable. And it's also not okay for you to be a person that is a beneficiary of the type of hostility that led to the need for HBCUs in the first place. You're not completely innocent in that regard. What I think we all can learn from it is that you don't have to, two things. First thing, you don't have to understand someone's struggle to stand with them. You don't need a first-hand play-by-play of the evils that have been inflicted on someone else in order to stand up for them. And not having a first-hand play-by-play is not an excuse to not stand up for them. If you care about the experience of humanity and you notice that there's someone who's being treated differently because of their race, because of their gender, because of their religion, because of their sexuality, because of their the country that they're from, because of their name, because of their hair texture, because of the color of their skin, you do not have to have a firsthand education on their oppression in order to be a voice. They are not the only person that can tell you what the wrong is. They may be able to tell you how they personally feel about the wrongdoing, but there's two sides to this problem. Black people are not the face of racism. You know, black people are not the face of racial institutions. There is the oppressed and there's the oppressor. So there, there are more, more, multiple ways of getting that understanding. But even if you don't have it, if you have the sense to know that something's not okay, then be a voice and say that this is not okay. That's the first thing. But then, taking it a step further, if the nature of what you did was to show sensitivity to the, the, the black people being a byproduct of institutionalized racism, it seems so counterproductive, especially if you are a law student and you're looking to find pathways to justify, not justify, but rectify some of the damage that has been done to black people due to the legal system, it seems so backwards that you you would then sue or take legal action against a black institution for millions. That, that it, it just, to me, it's like, how genuine was the motive in the beginning 
if you have a possible outcome of trying to dismantle this school altogether. If your passion was to understand ways to empower black youth, how can you sue a black school, a black educ- school, a black higher education school that for I just, I don't for millions. It just it to me it just doesn't it doesn't feel like it makes sense. And the takeaway from that is intentions like what I don't I don't know what this kid's motives were but I do know that there's times that we have what we consider the right thing but for the wrong intentions and when we do that we kind of undo any of the good that we set forth to do within that thing so if it is true that this person went to this school with the intentions of empowering black people it's possible that he may have been empowering black people and well attempting to empower black people in other aspects of his life outside of school but the grand gesture now of you suing this school kind of undoes some of that good that you've done (laughs) because it, it makes it seem like what you've done wasn't genuine in the first place you know it makes it seem like it was a mask it makes it seems like you were faking it because if you have consistent intentions through and through, those intentions should seep into your decision-making process. And when you are a person that you've made two decisions that compete with each other, the first thing that the world questions is what were your intentions in the first place or how genuine was your intentions in the first place? And then not only do you have to answer to that, but there's also the integrity of your word. What are you willing to lie for? What are you willing to lie about? You know, I I remember growing up, I remember hearing this term, word is bond. I used to think they were saying word is born, but they were saying word is bond. Like your word is your bond. And I did have a sense of like that principle was kind of taught to me in in aspects of community uh, just generally because of the time that I grew up and the one thing that I was very sure about was that when the integrity of your honesty has been questioned it's never it's really hard to restore it it's really hard to restore it and it's really Um, sad to have that thrown away due to you not following through on your intentions or you kind of being manipulative about your intentions coming out the gate. I'm sure that there's been a lot of stir up about this story. There's probably been a lot of hate speech being spewed. There's probably, I'm sure everybody's on the cancel culture wave, but the inconsistencies in our intentions That's a greater issue. And then even so, playing devil's advocate, too, because it's not just opportunity for um, this kid to learn on the on the side of doing what was obviously a stupid. That was what was obviously not a well thought through decision. (laughs) But there's also the how do we handle as people? 
how do we handle when we feel violated, but we also are representatives of something greater, right? As a Howard, as a student of Howard University, oh, I'm not, I'm not, but I'm just saying hypothetically, <laughs> if you're a student of Howard University or any HBCU, what is the most appropriate way to handle racial injustice within the Howard, within the school community? while also representing the school how how do how is how is that taught now when it comes to hbcus historically they have a subculture that has a lot to do with radical protests radical movements um a lot a lot of uh civil rights related batteries have been rooted in in HBCUs, the assimilation and the gathering of scholars to be a collective force against oppression. And so we ask ourselves the question, do we do as we see or do we do as we're told? You know, if we see a traditional history where this is how change is sparked, and within the culture of this school, we radically push unapologetically against white supremacy. What is the best way to handle when you feel there has been a, a student accepted into the school who is demonstrating cultural appropriation or possibly infiltrating the institution to dismantle it? which obviously is happening because he's suing for millions. Um, I'd, I'd like to think that the, the school had something to do with expelling him or that perhaps there was some sort of, I don't know, that went into, like maybe there was some sort of incident or I imagine that this, this story is definitely sugar-coated, you know. But I also wonder you know how exactly is there an admission process that censors these types of things from happening is is there a an appeals process within the school that outlines this is how you handle racial injustices on campus again playing devil's advocate if if you're an institution that deals with primarily the institutionalized racism and racial injustice that hand the handling <clears throat> the handling of racial injustices within the community that the school resides in much less the campus there should be a protocol for that there should be a protocol <clears throat> in place that favors the culture of the school there should be a protocol that is informed by institutionalized racism. There should be a protocol that is informed by white supremacy that acts in a strategic way to eliminate racial injustice within the campus community. Now, I don't go as far as to say what that protocol should look like, and perhaps there actually is a protocol, but I do know that when, if and when protocols take place within any organization, a school, a business, a whatever it is, 
the protocol typically favors the organization. And by doing that, there are some do's and don'ts and expectations to avoid things like a $4 million lawsuit, you know, or was it, was it 4 million? Y'all, I forgot. Let me look into, cause I have my notes. Hold on. Let me pull it up real quick. See how many millions this, 2 million, right? A $2 million lawsuit. So there, there typically should be some protocols in place to kind of prevent things like that from being possible within the Howard University community, it's worth asking the question, um, you know, is there is there a more, I don't want to call it professional, but I guess in a school setting, is there a more professional uh, series of steps to take when racial injustice happens within an academic community? And then furthermore, for other schools, for other, for high schools, for for other colleges, is this something that we should be looking at? Should schools ha- have protocols for handling racial injustice? Should there is should there be some type of hearing or appeals process that is sensitive to institutionalized racism? If you feel that you're being targeted for your race by someone that has entered your community, should there be a, a a step or a few steps that can be taken to rectify the situation? Why is there currently not? Can we, as a society, which of course we won't, it would be nice if we could, but can we as a society start having some team meetings and discussing, hey, something happened within a community where students felt targeted students felt that within their safe space was a person who was looking to dismantle that space can we now learn from that and say let's start to create pathways of when this happens in other aspects when this happens in our school when this happens in our community can we start to do that I think that taking that type of a step and taking that type of approach not only will obviously save you money in lawsuits, but it'll show that even when there isn't a problem, that you still care. Having protocols in place to handle racial injustice, that shows people of all backgrounds that this is something that you care about. This is something that you take serious. It sets a tone. It sets a tone for me to be a white person working at a company that I'm told upon hire that there is a sensitivity here towards racial injustice and there is a process to rectifying racism within the workplace. There's a process to rectifying racism within the, within the campus, within the school. You know what I mean? I've worked at places in corporate environments where there has been incidents of racism, blatant incidents of racism. And the response was very impromptu. It was not strategic. It obviously was 
it wasn't ready, you know, and the, it was so like performative. If you guys don't know uh, much about the the context of performative diversity, it's usually when, you know, something really bad happens or some type of issue is brought up. And in order to appear on board or not really controversial, an organization will typically put on some type of a show, making it seem like they care, making it seem like they're actually sensitive towards race making it seem like they're sensitive towards women's issues, LGBT. A good a good example of performative diversity is when every year, ever since um, the, the White House acknowledged and legalized gay marriage, ever since that day, you'll see during Pride Month, all of these companies, they will change their logos to like Pride colors. They'll... They, all of these companies pretend to be the face of um, LGBTQ pride. And I mean, all of these discover visa banks, everybody <laughs> all on Twitter. They change their logo to like a rainbow or a pride colored logo. And they leave it that way for the month. Now, these are not companies that actively push pride agendas or actively discuss LGBTQ topics or actively promote um, any type of fair trade or nothing. It literally is just during Pride Month, they wear the suit of LGBTQ pride. And once that month is over, they go back to their old logo. <laughs> So this is an example of performative because they're not really caring. They're not really showing that they t are taking a position on this. But what they're doing is they're just kind of like wave riding and just making it seem like they care and doing what the bare minimum is t to not be caught in the crossfires. You know what I mean? I've been in situations where companies have done that and it doesn't feel good. Whereas if instead of waiting for an incident, you make it the standard to say, hey, this is wh where we stand on these types of issues. And this is the procedure on how we handle these issues at the company. Are you understanding that what is acceptable and what's not acceptable here? You know, we are uh, an HBCU. We're, we're, a, we're a school that prides ourselves on the advancement of black centered education and that highly, highly is informed by institutionalized racism. And this is how we handle situations like that. Are you understanding of that? Are you understanding how your actions can dictate the culture or a shift in culture here on this campus full of people that have been marginalized by people who look like you? Do you understand where your position is in terms of being a trigger? Do you have a plan on how to build an alliance? You know what I mean? And even taking a step further for the school, is there some type of an alliance? Because I would I would hope that if you're a HBCU accepting white students, that there's some type of alliance where they are like anchored through some type of a pathway or something like that, because I do think it's a little bit irresponsible to just 
be accepting white students and throwing them in the mix, knowing the, the, the level of sensitivity that they are going to cause within your community. I think that that's irresponsible for the new student coming in and the students that you currently have. Now, so I don't know. I don't know if there is. If there is, let me know because I would love to hear about it. I did not go to an HBCU, so I don't know. But is that something that is is there? And even outside of an HBCU, is that something that should be everywhere? Because racism happens off, off on and off campus, right? This type of thing happens in the real world and stuff like that. It would be really interesting to see some type of shift where instead of these diversity and inclusion trainings, which really isn't training, it's just information. It's like a pamphlet on the fact that diversity is important. Racism exists. People are disenfranchised. But it's not a training on how not to do that. You know, it's not anti-racism training. It's not true sensitivity training, sensitivity to different skin colors, different um, hair textures. It's not that. It's really just acknowledging that there is a problem and we should acknowledge that there is a problem. But it's not leaning towards a solution. Instead of having these diversity inclusion trainings, it would be really interesting to have like some sort of, I don't know, like some sort of pathway that brings people into the environment with expectations of how they are to behave, expectations on how this community runs or, you know, it it would be interesting to kind of bring people into that, you know, um, bring, and it doesn't necessarily have to be limited to race. It could be even people with disabilities, you know, just bring people into these environments understanding hey we are a place that we are equal opportunity employers and we don't tolerate discrimination towards people who are whatever and we currently have employees who have disabilities and it's important for us to let you know that we do not tolerate that and these are the ways that you can be sensitive to these people with disabilities that we currently have here you don't even have to name drop just say that we we are we are a school that we cater to this particular population and it is important to us that if we're bringing you into this community as a non-member of this population that we teach you we are teaching you how to be sensitive and how to be respectful to the population that we do have. So it it would just be really interesting to see a more proactive approach to handling um, racial race related issues, um, diversity and inclusion related issues, as opposed to a being performative and then b waiting for really bad things to happen before we actually make some change and stuff like that i know that it's obviously less expensive if we just wait for the thing to actually happen because nobody wants to just be spending money on um structures that you don't know if they're actually going to be tested or not but to be a more responsible society It would be great to see us take a more proactive approach when it comes to issues like this to avoid situations like this, to avoid 
having a community feeling like there's someone in the community trying to dismantle it and to avoid having someone who is a non a person of the demographic feeling like they're outcasted and you know you, there there's so many other ways to be preventative to try your best to kind of like usher these dynamics together so that is our um society 101 um i'm i'm kind of gonna follow this story a little bit i might do a follow-up as i learn more details and get more information um but i just wanted to just have us take a look at that for a little bit it is one of those things that you hear about and you kind of just shake your head but it's worth taking a look at that as well as other things that happen in the media to discuss what exactly we can learn from it. I would love to see a world that responds to the news in a way that is we're learning. You know, I would love to see that. And I, I don't think that that never happens. I think that it's just a lot more rare than it should be. But um, thank you guys for kicking it with me for this um, episode, this uh, Society 101 episode. Um, I love doing this with you guys. I love having this podcast and this platform. Please continue to share with people that you think will benefit from these types of conversations. And um, yeah, I've been your mental health coach and I will catch you guys in the next episode. Peace.